Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch's sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com code odyssey. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Leslie Jones. It's going to be fine, or maybe it's not. Maybe I'll be standing in line, and like some guy will poke me in the butt with his dick and want to fuck me. I don't know. Again, we don't have black lights. This could be weird. That and more. But before that, I want to talk about one of my new favorite online stores, Thrive Market. I have had such a great personal experience getting my food, my my kitchen supplies, my bathroom supplies, you know, your grocery shopping at thrivemarket.com. Now, we are talking the best, the most organic, non-toxic, BPA-free, non-GMO, no artificial ingredients sorts of products at 25 to 50% off shipped right to your door. You know what else you can do? You can do price comparisons right there on Thrive Market's site to see the retail price versus what they're charging. You know, compare it to, say, Whole Foods or any place you might have to go out to go to the grocery. You know, they cut out the middleman so they can pass the savings right on to their members. I was so excited. The box came so quickly. I got myself a bunch of Laura bars and some green superfood mix that I've been making smoothies with. They had grain-free cat food for donkey. I've got all kinds of soups and soaps, all kinds of stuff in the bathroom now. You can do specific searches. For example, if you're vegan, you can curate so that you're only looking at their vegan products. So you'll get $60 of free organic grocery credits plus free shipping and a 30-day trial membership if you go to thrivemarket.com slash risk. And keep in mind, their prices are already 25 to 50% below retail. You're going to be amazed at the quality and the selection at thrivemarket.com slash risk for $60 off and free shipping and a 30-day trial membership at thrivemarket.com slash risk. Now here's the show.
Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Cairo behind me now, I believe. Cairo? Let me just double check that right now. Yeah. Hell yeah. It's Cairo, my friends. Kai to the Mickey Fickin' Row. And we're calling this week's episode Taking a Back. Taking a Back. Taking a Back. Hi, hold the dairy. We're sure shit taking a back. Now, I want to give a little shout out to uh, one of our Patreon patrons, Fred Rosenberger. <laughs> Fred Rosenberger. Thank you so much, sir. Fred is one of our Patreon patrons who is giving us $25 or more a month, and thus he gets a shout out. If you go to patreon.com slash risk, you'll find all kinds of bonus content there, and you'll be helping to keep risk running at patreon.com slash risk. Now, it was also my birthday this past weekend. February 16th is my birthday, so we put a video up on our Instagram and our Facebook saying, hey, Everyone there in honor of my birthday should pre-order the Risk Book at theriskbook.com. And I said I would choose three winners if, if you if you pre-order the book and then email us at Kevin at riskdashow.com. A, a com- the confirmation, a screenshot of the confirmation that you did pre-order the book, then maybe I would choose three winners. I said it, I would take them on a hot butt trip to Butt Town. <laughs> I don't know what I meant by that. I'll I'll figure out some sort of prize. We have a wonderful show today. Three stories told at Risk Live shows in three different cities. In a little bit, we're going to hear from Leslie Jones, a story that she told the last time that we were in Portland, Oregon. But before that, we're going to hear from... Al Jackson, uh, one of our favorites. Al is a comedian uh, based in Los Angeles. You can find him on Twitter, at Al Jackson. Here he is at our show that we do once a month at the Bootleg Theater in L.A. with a story we call Mr. Magic. This story is about me. Uh, I got fired from Carnival Cruise Lines uh, <laughs> as a comedian, but I forgot about that story. But that story was unlocked by uh, the fact that I had done mushrooms for the first time, and <laughs> I'll explain how these stories link up right now. Uh, I am 40. I just did mushrooms for the first time a couple years ago, and I'm like, I don't wear. Well, yes, I know. Thank you. Where the fuck, black people, have they been? Like, why do they have, why are they in the home back on much? I feel like, I feel like there was like a drug draft. And like white people, y'all got the first round pick and y'all took meth. And black people, we didn't know what was going on. So we were like, fuck, just take crack. We'll figure it out. Fuck it. And mushrooms just slid to the third round and we just didn't know how good they were. I didn't know. Uh, I took mushrooms for the first time on a Sunday night in Grand Rapids, Michigan at a Marriott uh, Fairfield Inn and Suites. Uh, I had to be on Nickelodeon the next day. Uh, yes, uh, 
Nickelodeon had this thing. They tried this thing because uh, anybody's got kids like myself. Uh, Nick Jr., like all their shows, like Dora the Explorer, they all run to like 6 o'clock and they were realizing that like when moms would put their kids to bed, they would come out and leave Nick Jr. on. So they were like, when they come back and put their kids down, there's going to be stand-up comedy. And uh, the reaction y'all had is the same one that the audience had. Uh, so the show didn't do well. Uh, but I did it. And uh, I was in uh, Grand Rapids doing a, a comedy festival and uh, I did the festival with one of my homies and he does so many psychedelics that he actually does a one hour show on psychedelics. So I, he was like, dude, take this mushroom. It's like a chocolate mushroom. He's like, take this. And I was like, okay, cause I thought mushrooms helped you sleep. So I was like, because, no. Dude, I, these are not jokes. I swear on my grandmother's life, God rest his soul. I thought mushrooms helped you sleep. And I had been in three different states in three different days, so I, had, I was on different times. So I was like, I'm gonna be on TV tomorrow, I need to get some sleep. So I took the mushrooms, and I realized now he was trying to be cool, and he was like, I'm gonna stay in your room so I, I can make sure you have a cool trip. And I was like, I can handle my shit, you know what I'm saying? It'd be like, if like you were watching Star Wars and like, you know, Yoda was trying to show Luke something, he was like, dude, I got it, fuck off. It was like, I kicked my fucking, the guy that was gonna show me how to do it out of my room, and as I kicked him out of my room, I was like, yeah, I wasn't being rude, but I was just like, all right, man, I'm good. I, I, yeah, I'll see you next, next time on the road, whatever. And like, I knew something was happening because they must have kicked in like as I was closing the door because I immediately turned to the right and was trying to argue with the hotel room art. You know, it's just like, what the fuck are you looking at? And I was like, oh shit, I'm fucked up. Let me get my friend. And I opened the hallway. He was gone because I think like 44 minutes had passed. Like, he's gone. <laughs> So now it's just me in a hotel room because I, I, made, I made an executive decision I'm gonna live with now. And so my first plan, I don't know every dude in here, I don't care if you black, white, man, your first plan when you really fucked up, you're like, all right, let me get my shirt off. You know what I'm saying? Like, let me get my shirt off. I, can, I can't think right now. So I took my shirt off and I don't know if anybody, I don't know why this did this. I took my shirt off and I went in the bathroom. I just put toilet paper around myself like that and I sat on the edge of the bed and that movie Wild Wild West with Will Smith was on USA Network. And it was like coming at me like the clouds were coming at me through the screen and like almost hit me in the face. And I was like, God damn, this movie is still unwatchable. <laughs> but the reason that unlocked the Carnival Cruise Line stories, I ended up uh, going to the airport the next day, still tripping on mushrooms. And I was, uh, was in there with this guy, the rest of comedy magazine, and he was interviewing me about the first time I've ever been fired. And I, I swear the mushrooms unlocked this, this fucking random ass memory. I, uh, I started comedy in uh, South Florida, Miami. Uh, and this is like, I felt like an old man saying this, but like starting comedy now, I think it's different. You know what I'm saying? I think like you know kind of what you're doing. You can go on the internet and figure out what shows are. You can watch favorite comics, hear interviews with them, hear how they, like in, when I started comedy in Miami 13 years ago, it was a wild, wild west. We used to walk in the like hood, black and Latin nightclubs. The owner wouldn't know there was a show going on. He just like, he would stop the music, which is never good. Uh, and he would like, like you know, Beowulf would bring you up. He'd be like, hey, y'all ready for Al Jackson? He'd be on Comedy Central. But this is how you would get introduced in Miami. Like he'd be like, all right, y'all. Uh, we got some comics here. I didn't book them. Uh, like, this is literally how you're about to hit the stage. You're just like, oh my God. 
and it was it was always as bad as you. So like I had been I had just been doing horrible nightclubs. It it just been horrible, but I stuck it out. And I was like, I gotta change the trajectory of my career. So I did the Carnival Cruise Lines comedy contest uh, early. Usually you do cruise lines at the end of your career. I was like, I need to do something. I panic. And I won the contest. So I was on Carnival Cruise Lines. And I know y'all like, oh, how y'all gonna, how you gonna bitch about being on a cruise ship? Uh, I'll tell you why. Because the first time is dope. <laughs> Kicking it. The 44th time. <laughs> you're like, if I see St. Lucia one more time. <laughs> uh, and it sucks for comics because we're not allowed to talk to y'all. They refer to the passengers on Carnival, like in our, in our manuals, they refer to you guys as cones, like avoid the cones. Like, you're, we're not allowed to talk to you guys for, for legal reasons, so we have to stay below deck, on deck zero, like with no windows. Like, we down there like Leo DiCaprio. And we can hear y'all having the time of your lives. Like, listen to fucking Bruno Mars and Cupid Shuffle. I'm like, hey, fuck y'all. And I've never been I never, I've been on, I've worked probably 85 cruises. I've never been on a cruise as a passenger and you're not allowed to go upstairs. And Carnival, which is not an American company, so they don't have to do like the, the documenting shit. They can just fire your ass, like you can just be gone. Uh, but one day I was like, I snapped. I was like, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go upstairs. And I want to see a show, because this was the night before my show. And uh, so I put a hat on. First of all, I'm the only black dude on board, but I got a hat. And I go, my face is everywhere. I go upstairs, and it was the, uh, the magic show. My show was the next night. And uh, I'm not talking shit about Carnival. Uh, they paid me a lot of money. They were cool. Uh, but this magic show... <laughs> It'd be like if your uncle got drunk on wild turkey this past Christmas and was like, come in the living room, I'm doing magic. Like, that was the... Ma I mean, he was literally doing the handkerchief out the shit. And I was like, holy fuck, this is horrible. And I'm sitting like, kind of where you are, big man. I'm sitting there and um, he was rapping, he was getting to the end of his set. And uh, what he would do is he would bring like an eight-year-old on stage. And usually in the showroom, there's like 1,500 people. Uh, he would bring this young little white kid up there and stands him at the front of the stage, ties his hands behind his back. And he has a hollow ring that goes around the neck. And it's got a hole in the back and a hole in the front. And he's got a... Uh, like a rubber sword, but it looked real. And what he would do is he would put it through the hole in the back, it go around the side, come out the front, and it was like, I'm stabbing your neck. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that was his thank you, good night. <laughs> and your reaction as adults <laughs> is the proper one. <laughs> but what y'all are forgetting is that this kid is eight. And when an adult tells you that they have a sword, <laughs> you tend to believe them. And I, like I said, I'm sitting where you are, big man. I got my hat on, and I'm just looking at this kid, and this kid's got his hands behind his back. You gotta think what this, like to him, there's 1,500 grown people saying, do it, because this guy, this is his big closing act. So he's like, tell your parents, I'm a, they're about to have twins, I'm gonna cut you in half. And I'm, look, I'm like you, I'm like, this kid is not feeling this shit one bit. <laughs> And, but the magician is behind the kid, so he's with this. He's like, don't make me do it, I'm crazy. Tell your parents I'm gonna cut your head off. And I'm like, he's not digging this shit one bit. It's like, y'all ever been to the zoo? And you lock eyes with a monkey. 
and you realize that we're all mammals and you can read each other's thoughts. Like, I'm looking at this kid. I was like, this is not good at all. I was like, he's not feeling this shit. And so this guy's like, all right, let's get this done right now. I need a big countdown on three, three, two. Before this dude got to one, this kid let out blue projectile vomit that went straight up, straight down on the stage. He goes to run off the stage, but his hands are tied. So he slips in it, butt scoots off the stage, show over. Now, how does this affect Al Jackson's employment? I was laughing. You know those kind of laughs that you only get like twice in your life? Like God gave it right to you where it's like not healthy to laugh like that. All fours, hat off drool connected to the carpet to my lip, laughing in a weird way. My cruise director stood over me and told me I was fired on my hands and knees, which was some weird racial shit I didn't like. And when you get fired from Carnival because you're in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, they put you off in the next port. So they made me do my exit interview, and I swear to God, when I was at Customs, when I got to the exit interview, they said, reason for being fired, I just wrote, worth it. That's... And that's me getting fired from Carnival, guys. Thank y'all so much. And I was kind of taken aback. It's rather taken aback. I must confess, the news did come as something of a surprise to us. Even Sophie was taken aback. I was taken aback. Um, taken aback. I was taken aback by how big it was. I was naturally taken aback. You were taken aback. Oh, I was so taken aback I said anything that popped into my sleepy head. While I found the white pleated collar alluring, but I was rather taken aback by the flutter of Godet's. I am suspended several feet above the floor. I'm in rope bondage and I can feel it wrapping around my body. Tomorrow is the Folsom Street Fair in San Francisco, or what many of my friends in the kink community call kinky Christmas. Tomorrow, all the human puppies and human ponies and gay bears will come out to play. Kinksters from all over the world will flood the street in their shiny new latex and nice new harnesses. But tonight is kinky Christmas Eve. And I am at my friend's house because she is throwing a sexy party. I'm in her upstairs bedroom, which has beautiful high vaulted ceilings and hard wooden floors. And I am suspended. And I've waited a long time for this. It's my first time ever doing this. I mean, I've been tied up before tons of times, but this is the first time I've ever been tied up several feet above the ground. And I feel the ropes digging into my skin, the strategically placed knots. And it's perfect. My partner and my best friends are hanging out on the bed, just watching me. And the room is full of people. And my friends are eating snacks. And I feel the rope digging into my skin. And is that salami? <laughs> Did my friend Sarah find salami and cheese and crackers? God, I hope she saves me some. I think I'm going to be hungry after this. 
but the rope is sticking into my skin and I'm so helpless and this is crazy. I'm hanging from the ceiling naked, insane. And did I pay my rent yesterday? <laughs> I think I did, but that could just be last month or the month before. It always feels the same. I'm pretty sure I did okay the rope. It's digging into my skin. It feels great. The pain is turning to pleasure. And okay, this should be way more awesome. Why can't I focus? No matter how hard I try, I just, I can't bring myself to focus. And as my mind wanders and wanders, I'm brought back to five years ago, the first time I ever went to a kinky party at a dungeon. I lived in Davis, a small college town at the time. And I mean, my boyfriend at the time and I had done lots of kinky stuff together. In fact, the way we got together was a coworker had shown me his copy of the movie Secretary about a kinky lawyer and his secretary. <laughs> but bringing up the topic to him seemed so different from asking for him to tie me up and beat me in our bedroom. This was in public. This was coming out. This was around strangers. So I kept it inside for a long time and then I found the perfect event a kink event for people aged 35 and under I found it where else the internet on kind of like a kinky Facebook called FetLife I went to him and I said you know I mean there's this party we could go to maybe I don't know it might be creepy I'm not sure if you're interested or not but it's at this place called the Citadel it might be great it might be awful there could be come on the walls we don't know we won't have a black light do you want to try it he was like yeah, sure. I mean, it could be great. So we jump in the car, and it's a two-hour drive to San Francisco from Davis. And the whole way, I'm saying, you know, we could turn back right now. If we get there and we decide we don't want to go, it's fine. There's lots of delicious restaurants there. And again, we could turn around right now. Are we even wearing the right thing? I don't know. Like, I didn't have a corset. It's going to be fine, or maybe it's not. Maybe I'll be standing in line, and, like, some guy will poke me in the butt with his dick and want to fuck me. I don't know. Again, we don't have black lights. This could be weird. So we get there. We roll up in front of the venue. We're sure it's the venue because there's a bunch of people hanging out out front that look like the goth kids I wasn't cool enough to hang out with in high school. <laughs> so we're at the right place. I open the door, step over some broken glass, and everything smells like pee. It's in a sketchy neighborhood, and after debating for about five minutes, more to stall from going inside than anything about hiding my backpack in the trunk of the car, we finally park, go inside the venue, and we go down one long, dark hallway and down another long, dark hallway, and finally we're at the front desk of the Citadel, San Francisco's premier dungeon. And to pay admission, we have to become members for like, you know, legal reasons and stuff like that. So we have to write down our real names and our actual address. And, you know, it feels a lot like registering as an X-Men. <laughs> it's official now, guys. We're kinky. We are practitioners of BDSM, bondage, submission, masochism, and other things. We've registered. So, somewhat ambivalent, we turn the corner into another area, which is boxed in by lockers. That's a wild card. Why do we need lockers? Not sure. But what really throws me for a loop is everyone has rolly luggage backpacks. Like I'm at some kind of goth airport or something. I mean, I knew sex tourism was a thing, but really? So, I mean, we didn't have any clothes to change out of or into to put into the lockers, and we didn't have a rolly backpack yet. 
we didn't bring anything really. So we, we pass that area and we go into the main social area. And I don't know what I was expecting. Maybe something between like a vampire lair and perhaps something from like Story of O. But there was no nubile young submissive like bent over an ottoman being caned. Instead, there was just like... I don't know, one of those coffee dispensers you'd find in a Jiffy Lube, complete with like the styrofoam cups. It felt like being at a party at someone's house that you didn't know. There were just people hanging out on couches and no one was really naked. But I was still really nervous. I mean, I'd always felt like an outsider for being kinky. It was something I couldn't talk to my friends about. But now we're in this room full of supposedly kinky people I felt like an outsider here too. So I nervously perched on the edge of my boyfriend's seat. And he seemed remarkably chill about all of this. He was just really rolling with the punches. And I was extremely nervous. So again, I was like, you know, we can leave if you want. Like, again, we don't, we still don't know if there's cum on the walls, no black light. It's very dark. We can leave. This, this is lame. This is boring. We can totally go at any point. Like, it's fine. And he's like, hey, Leslie relax, chill out, like, this is fine, let's just hang out for a bit, calm down. So I tried to calm down, but I couldn't, I kept making up excuses, and finally, after I suggested we leave for, like, the fifth time, he was like, you know what, I think we should go downstairs. The dungeon is divided into two levels. The top level is like the social area and the bottom level was the dungeon. And all I'd heard coming from the bottom level were cries of, like, pain and pleasure. And I was terrified but also very excited. So he grabs my hand and we go downstairs and we stand at the entrance to the dungeon at the bottom of the stairs. And I don't know how to describe this to you guys as anything, but like, it felt a lot like a gym. (laughs) So there's like furniture everywhere, like leather covered equipment except instead of getting like good abs and pecs and stuff you would just like use it to tie up your romantic partner and beat the crap out of them (laughs) and I wanted to look at everything but I also didn't know where to put my eyes I wasn't sure what the etiquette was here so I looked at him I was like you know we should probably just look down we don't belong here we're not playing this is weird I mean it's okay but I mean there's lots of things and there was there was a lot of things there were a ton of cages and there was like this circular board hanging from the ceiling you could like tie your submissive to and fuck them in either a clockwise or counterclockwise fashion (laughs) and people were doing that right there in front of me (laughs) there were these x's which i would later learn were called saint andrew's crosses and everyone seemed to be having a great time i was still nervous i couldn't let loose and my boyfriend grabbed my wrist not my hand my wrist and said you know I think I think it's time to go play I was like you know this is our first time here we totally don't have to do that he said no we definitely are doing that I was like peer pressure is not a thing in a dungeon type sex situation (laughs) he says not but I really want to do this so we went to the only available piece of dungeon workout equipment (laughs) it was a thin tall cage the perfect size to put a Leslie in I didn't know I ever wanted to be in a cage until I saw it then I was terrified he opened the door it creaked of course and I stepped in and stepping into that threshold voluntarily 
felt so powerful and big. He closed the door behind me, but he saw I was so nervous. I was starting to shake. He opened it again. I was like, oh, is he letting me out so soon? No. He took off his tie and he tied it around my eyes. And now his tie was a blindfold and he shut the door again and he closed the latch cover. There was no lock, but I wouldn't have dared to leave. I couldn't see him. I'm assuming he stepped away. All I heard were the sounds of the dungeon and I was there alone, so scared, but safe. And then he was back. He said, you're not stuck enough. So he opened the door again and he brought out the only toy we had brought with us, which was a pair of ice cold, hard metal police issue handcuffs. He took my left hand, clanked the metal over it, and I heard it click shut. He pulled my left hand up, looped the handcuffs over the top of the cage, pulled my right hand up, locked it in, and now I was really stuck. He put his hand behind my neck and undid the halter of my dress and let it fall away. And then he shut the door again, and I was blindfolded and handcuffed and in a cage naked. I've always been ashamed of my breasts. They're small and stupid looking double A cup pieces of crap. (laughs) At least until then they were. I could feel everyone's eyes in the dungeon looking at me and I knew that in that cage anyone could do anything they wanted to me. What if they came over and touched me through the cage? They could look at me, any part of me they wanted. I was a kid in high school when everyone went skinny dipping. I left my clothes on, but this, this was different. This was scary, but in the most delicious way. I felt my nipples harden and the cold air against my chest. Someone was getting fucked on the bed beside me. I I heard their breath breathing in and out and in and out. And I actively had to stop myself from begging, pleading, screaming for the most obscene things, from begging for my boyfriend to shove his fingers into my creamy, wet, waiting cunt. Maybe not even my boyfriend, maybe anyone or everyone there. I'd never been so turned on in my life. I'd never felt so vulnerable. And then, then I'm back five years later and it's Folsom Eve. I'm hanging from the ceiling in my friend's house. And you know, I'm tied up in beautiful shibari bondage, several feet above the ground. And kinksters, people who are into BDSM, they love their theatricality. When you think about it, a lot of BDSM scenes are quite literally cops and robbers for (laughs) grown-ups. But really, at its core, everyone who really engages with kink is looking for something. Some people haven't found exactly what they're looking for yet, but a lot of people are looking for things like the feeling of having complete and consensual control over another human being, or the feeling of giving themselves up completely, or feeling pain blossom and turn itself into something completely pleasurable and ecstatic. But me, what I search for is that feeling of complete vulnerability. People looking at me 
And seeing me for what I am, being displayed for what I am, for my most wanton wants and needs, vulnerability. And I feel the ropes around me tighten, and I feel them dig into my skin. And then those ropes, they feel, they feel like the bars of the cage at that first party I was ever at. And I feel myself tighten up with need. And for the first time that night, I'm really, actually, truly there. Thanks. This is Thunder Jackson behind me now, and we just heard from Leslie Jones. That was uh, the last time that Risk was in Portland, Oregon, was when we recorded that one. I think you can still find Leslie on Twitter at science underscore patrol. And before that, a little interstitial by our episode editor, Jeff Barr. I wanted to let you guys know about another podcast you might want to check out. The Outside Podcast brings outside magazine's tradition of literary storytelling into the audio world. Their Science of Survival series presents sound-rich, immersive stories about how people survive the most difficult circumstances the producers can dream up, being chased by killer bees, poisoned by wild mushrooms, even survival at sea with nothing but a surfboard. Listen to The Outside Podcast at Outside online.com slash podcast or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Another one to check out is Versify. Versify is a show where people tell their stories and then hear their words turned into poetry. 
you'll hear poets form connections with storytellers as they gain insights into their lives, then weave those insights into a work of art and offer it back as a gift, not only to the participants, but also to you, the listener. Versify is a collaboration between Nashville Public Radio, PRX, and The Porch, a nonprofit literary center. Its new season is out now, and you can find it at podcast.wpln.org or subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Radio Public, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. Now, our final story on this week's episode comes to us from Rachel Ann Warren. This was recorded the last time that Risk was in Washington, D.C. You can find Rachel at rachelannwarren.com, and here she is now with a story we call My Duty. Since I was nine years old, I've wanted to be a hero. In fact, just the other day, my boyfriend and I were driving in the county, and we came up to a red light at a busy intersection. And I could see that the cars were acting erratically, jabbing to the left and the right. So we looked out, and there we saw seven or eight tiny little newborn baby ducklings that were without their mother and aimlessly trying to find their way out of this busy intersection. So I turned to my boyfriend in the car, and I'm like, we have to do something. We have to help them. And before I know it, I'm out of the car, and I've run into the middle of the intersection, and I've got my arms out, my left and right arm, and I'm stopping traffic like Joan of Arc or a crossing guard or something. And I've got these tiny little ducklings between my feet, and I'm trying to waddle them out of the intersection and off into safety. And up comes this very pregnant woman who says, well, I happen to have a farm. I'll take the orphan ducklings. And I'm like, wow, what a beautiful ending to this story. I felt so good, but I felt even more than good. I felt accomplished. This is not to say that I always succeed in my attempts at heroism. In fact, it has kind of a dark roots in my childhood. So when I was seven years old, my five-year-old brother got sick. Uh, he went from sinking slugs on the path out back and taunting older kids on his big wheel in the cul-de-sac to a mostly vegetative state in a red rubber bed in our living room. He started off looking and acting like a normal five-year-old and pretty quickly his skin turned a really dark brown and depending on the part of his illness, he was either extremely bloated or incredibly thin so you could see every bone and tendon and muscle in his body. He often had seizures throughout the day and he would projectile vomit throughout the day as well. But my mother did an amazing job of creating this kind of bubble of serenity, peace, and compassion in our home. 
So when the doctor said he couldn't see or that he couldn't hear, there were some things we couldn't argue with, like we knew he couldn't eat, he had a tube in his stomach, and my mother would use a syringe to pump formula and liquid food through. But when they said he couldn't hear, my mother completely disregarded that. She turned to us girls, I remember being in the car with her, and almost to herself, she turned back and said, how could they possibly know whether or not he could hear? Just because he can't communicate what he sees and takes in in his surroundings doesn't mean that he can't hear. So to her, it was something that couldn't be proven. And to us, that made magic even more real. So it didn't surprise me the next morning when I woke up and my thin mother was downstairs in the living room at the upright piano playing the theme of Romeo and Juliet, our favorite. And it filled not only the living room where my brother was in his medical bed, but the whole first floor and our entire house with music. Ba da da dum, ba da da dum, ba da da dum, ba da da dum, ba da 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 dum. And with that, my sisters and I became professional dancers. My mother knew how to transform this house that felt sometimes or maybe looked a little bit more like a hospital room into something really whimsical and dreamy. I wasn't really clear on how sick my brother was um, for a good part of his illness. Um, but we did have this special nurse who would come, Nurse Karen, and she'd come a few days a week for a few hours at a time and kind of relieve my mom so she could, you know, go to the grocery store or catch up on laundry. And Miss Karen was so warm and soft. She was an older lady who often had little goodies in her pockets that she would um, bestow upon us girls. And one day, um, she brought something even more special. She gave my sisters and I um, each our very own coloring book. And I could tell from kind of like the theme that it was something having to do with children and grief. So I just hurried away with my coloring book. I was really excited about it, regardless of the topic. And I'm flipping through, and I'm like, okay, people, places, things. And I get to like the middle, there's this pretty much completely blank page. And I'm like are they supposed to give you something to color in in a coloring book? So I look a little closer because I'm interested and at the very top it says, draw a picture of what death looks like. And I'm like, well, I don't know. Like, so I run over to my crayons and I grab the reddest crayon I can find and I come back to the book and I draw a big, huge knife and I put blood dripping all the way down and pooling at the bottom. And I'm so proud of this thing that I've made. And I run over to Nurse Karen and I'm like, here you go, this is what I made. And she just, she melts, you know, in her voice and her body just, um, you know, she could put her hand on your back and make you purr like a kitten. She said, dear Rachel, <laughs> death is not always criminal. It's not always violent. It's not always bloody. But it does always hurt and it's always hard. With that, I saw her just kind of glance over at my brother in his chair, laying there strapped in, waiting between seizures and vomit. 
And I too looked over and it occurred to me for the first time, my brother's gonna die. I knew he was sick, but I didn't like get that this was also going to be like the end of him. So this was a lot for me to take in. I kind of felt like people had like kept this secret from me, so I didn't want to talk to my family about it. I didn't want to talk to my nurse or my teachers or my friends about it. So I'm sitting up in my bedroom, and I'm like seven, eight years old at this point, and my brother's five, six years old at this point. And I'm thinking, well, if I can't talk to any humans, like I wonder maybe I should just like talk to God. And I'd gone to Sunday school for years, every week, so I knew like who God was. I knew he was kind of like an important person, like this man way, way up in the sky. And if you, you know, if you pray to him really hard, and if you were a really good girl, then he just might answer your prayers. So I started, I didn't really know a prayer, except I had this um, Jesus-themed sleeping bag that I got (laughs) at Sunday school, and it had like a two-line prayer on it, and I was like, I'm going to memorize this thing, and I'm going to say this to God every night. So I get under my covers, and I pull my covers up to my chin, and I close my eyes really tight, and I recite this prayer, and I do this every night religiously for weeks. Every so often, I go downstairs, and I check on my brother, and I feel like, you know, I don't see any difference. He's not really getting any better. Nothing's really changing. So I think, okay, well, maybe God needs me to, like, pray a little more genuinely. Like, maybe I should come up with my own prayer. Um, Maybe he's heard this prayer off the sleeping bag from probably like thousands of other little girls. So I start by walking over to the window of my bedroom. I kneel down and we were at the end unit in a townhouse and my bedroom faced the backyard. And from my window, I could see a tree, a lot of trees. There was like a whole forest back there. So I could see these trees that were like 10 stories high. And oftentimes there was this like little owl on one of the limbs because we had this kind of weird neighbor who had a wooden post and he would like deposit frozen chicks on the edge of this post. And the owl would like swoop down and grab the chick and like off he went. So after I watched the owl, I would look up past the trees and I'd see the moon. You know, no matter like how dark the night would get, I could always find the moon. So I figured that must be where God lives. So I would be kneeling down and I'd pray to the moon and I'd say, dear God, please don't let my brother die. I'll do anything. I won't tell a lie. I'll be a good girl. Just please don't let my brother die. Over the next few weeks, my prayers became more heartfelt and I started to fill with desperation because once again, nothing was changing. Once again, it seemed my brother was getting worse and from what I heard from conversations my mom had with the nurse, he was getting worse. So I decided, well, maybe I should try to talk to my brother about this. Maybe my mom was right. Maybe he can still hear. So I went downstairs, and I kneeled next to him on the tan carpet, and I put my hand on his little brown hand, and I looked into his eyes, and he looked up at the ceiling because his eyes were always stuck up. And I said, Robbie, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to fix you. I keep trying to talk to God, but he can't hear me or he's not listening. And just then, you know, tears are streaming out of my face. And I thought I was alone, but I hear the click from the basement door. And my mom appears and she turns and looks at me and says, are you crying? 
And I look back at her and I say, oh, no, 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 I just, I hit my head and I am off and I am out of there, up the stairs and up to my bedroom. So I'm in my bedroom and I'm like, I've got to come up with a plan. Like God clearly has some really high expectations of me. I'm going to have to come up with something really incredible, really remarkable, something that he couldn't possibly deny. And the most popular idea in my mind was a truly terrific task. If I could open the refrigerator door in the kitchen and run around the entire first floor and get back to the refrigerator door before it closed, then I felt sure that God would be so impressed that he would make my brother all better. So I had a comfortable clothes on and comfortable shoes. I did a couple stretches and I got down to the refrigerator door and I flung it open and I ran through the kitchen, past the dining room, in the foyer, through the living room, passing my brother. And would you believe it, I made it there like before the refrigerator door was even halfway shut. So I was so pleased with myself that I thought instantly, like, boom, God was going to, like, solve my problems for me. So I walk out, and I see that, in fact, no, that simply wasn't enough. But at this point, I was clearly out of ideas. I had no idea what I could do. God had clearly exponential expectations. So I, I kind of started praying for, just tell me, God, just tell me. And I would walk around the living room, just kind of lingering around and looking at my brother and trying to come up with an idea. And one day, as he normally would, he started to throw up. And my sisters and my mom and I, you know, we were his nurses. It was part of our normal job to go and catch his throw up. We had a series of cereal bowls lined up next to his bed, brightly colored, you know. So I grabbed a blue cereal bowl, had like scalloped edges that made it easier to grasp. And I put the bowl up under his lip and I caught as much of his milkshakey throw up as I could so that we wouldn't have to clean him up and he'd be comfortable. As I'm walking this mostly full bowl of throw up over to the kitchen sink to pour down the drain and dispose of it, something wobbles just enough that I get a real good whiff, just like a smack in the face of that stuff, and it's bad. Like, it smells like all the awful and terrible things that encompass my brother's sickness. It smells like death. But that's like when something weird happens. It was so intense that it got in my head and it seemed to me like God just like phoned in in that moment and he had like got rented an apartment in there and got a megaphone and was like, you have to drink your brother's throw up. <laughs> and in my head, I'm talking back to God and I'm like, I can't do that. That's so gross. That's like the grossest thing I could possibly imagine doing. I don't see how that's going to help anything. But all I hear is God say, you have to drink your brother's throw up. And I don't know what to do. I'm totally out of options at this point. And my brother, things are not going in the right direction. So I'm kind of thinking about this and I'm kind of like, well, I guess I could try. Um, maybe one day he won't throw up a whole lot and I could just get it down. So I find myself orbiting the living room more often because I figure I should be the one to catch his throw up as many 
possible opportunities as I could. So I'm orbiting and I'm catching his throw up. And over that first week, the second week, I'm, I'm not getting too close. You know, the bowl, it's getting a few inches from my face and my body is just rejecting it. And I'm throwing it away. And I just feel like a failure. And as the weeks go by, I know my brother is set to go to a hospital for you know, the final treatments. And I know that my opportunities are getting less and less. So I know I've got to do it. So I, I finally just pull, I pull the blue bowl up to my mouth and I slowly get it right up to my lip and I can feel the plastic where it's beveled and cracked. And this warm bowl is just filling my face with the sickness. And as I tilt it back, and it starts moving toward my mouth, my body rejects it. And I completely fail. And nobody else knows this, but I know that I've probably just killed my brother. And if I haven't killed him, then I certainly haven't saved him. My brother goes to the hospital for the last few months of his life and he does die there and I keep the secret with me. In the living room, his medical equipment, it disappears by magic and nothing and no one ever fills the space that he left behind. I'm stuck. I don't know that I want to be the kind of person who has this sort of compulsion to perceive danger wherever I go, whether or not it's there. But that's what I've become. So I suppose I'm now the sort of person that when I see someone or something in what I imagine is grave danger. I feel it's my duty to do whatever possible to stop the catastrophe from happening. And I realize that this won't bring my brother back, but I hope it will help me to sleep better at night. Thank you. That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Quilt behind me now, and we just heard from Rachel Ann Warren. You can find her at rachelannwarren.com. She's currently working on a memoir. 
about running away to join a circus when she was 19 years old. Well, I'll tell you something. We are so excited about our next live show on February 24th. We are back at Caveat in Manhattan on the Lower East Side on Clinton Street. We have Vanessa Galenia, Andrea Allen, Richard Cardillo, David Drake, a phenomenal night of storytelling on February 24th at Caveat. Our first show there was such a treat. And, you know, the show does sell out. So make sure to go to risk-show.com slash tour. And that's where you find all the information about our live shows. Buy your tickets ahead of time. And come see us on February 24th at Caveat in Manhattan. Don't forget that little birthday thing we were doing where I was telling people that if you want to give me a present for my birthday, well, you can pre-order the Risk Book at theriskbook.com. And then if you take a snapshot, a screenshot of your confirmation that you pre-ordered the book and email it to me at kevin at risk-show.com, we will choose three winners among those who email us back with those confirmations and I'll create some fabulous prize for all three winners. Maybe even a hot butt trip to butt town. A great way to spread the word about risk is via Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. All three places we're at risk show. There's also fabulous conversations happening about risk stories at the risk podcast fans discussion group on facebook or right there on our site on the listen pages for each specific episode where the tables of contents are it's super helpful to us if you leave a five-star good review for us on itunes at the podcast page there you can pitch us your stories at risk-show.com slash submissions there's all sorts of tips for how to prep a story and how to pitch it to us there on our submissions page. And if you need any training in storytelling, one-on-one training over Skype, uh, group workshops, uh, video courses that you can download and take in your own time, or corporate workshops, we do all that sort of storytelling training at thestorystudio.org. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. And now, the sound of John Denver being strangled. You came on my pillow. (laughs) Thank you.